That's a somber place for us to end as we sing, uh, but it's appropriate now as we come before God's word. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Mark in chapter 15. In all the weeks and months that we've been reading through Mark now, we've come to the, to the cross of Jesus. And before we read, would you, would you please pray with me? Our God, would you be with us now by your spirit? Would you help us to hear you now? For me and for us, would you help us to see you and to believe? Lord, as we come now before your cross, would you help us to to tremble and to have hope? And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 15. We'll start in verse 16 and read a number of verses here. This is Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. And the soldiers led him, Jesus, away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is God's word. We know in the previous section, if you were here with us last week, and even if you weren't, we, we, we talked about how Jesus is the righteous judge of the whole world. And ironically, in the section right before, this righteous judge is the one who's on trial being judged. 
And at that trial, there were multiple ones, but if we sum them up at the trial, he was condemned both of blasphemy, according to them, and of, of treason. And so they called him guilty. And now they're carrying out that sentence with death, with crucifixion. Uh, the first century Roman politician Cicero said this about crucifixion. Crucifixion is the cruelest and most hideous punishment possible. For us, uh, we're not going to give too much attention to the crucifixion process itself. Uh, sometimes you see in movies or other places because the cross is such a gory, bloody thing that it's almost used for shock value or used for emotional effect to manipulate our, our sense of pity and feelings of guilt or pain. Uh, but Mark, on the other hand, as he talks about this, is not too detailed about the process of crucifixion itself. Uh, when, the, when the moment comes, where is it? Verse uh, 24, it just says, and they crucified him. Mark just states the reality, probably in part because the audience that he's originally writing to knows exactly what crucifixion entails. They know that the whole process is brutal and cruel, so he doesn't go into too many of the details. They already know that the process of crucifixion includes even a prelude beforehand of beatings to break down the body and the spirit. that the crucifixion was intended to sap not only their strength, but their hope. And so the crucifixion process then starts small but powerfully with, with teasing, with making fun, with laughing at him in this case. You can see at the beginning it starts by they put the purple robe on him, they put the crown of thorns, all very iconic things now. They, they kneel down even before him and salute him. Oh, hail king, they say, all being very sarcastic. And that, that degrading then gets very violent very fast and soon they're striking his head, they're spitting on him and beating him. Now, for us, that might be surprising to watch or to read, but this was not surprising or shocking to Jesus. We know when he was talking to his disciples earlier in chapter 10, verse 33, he said this to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. It's a reminder to us then, Jesus knows what's going on. And evil is not winning here. This is all going according to God's perfect plan. And even though the brutality of the moments are strong, we know that God is so much stronger. 
Jesus takes all of this willingly. We know that because of other things that he said, but also when he's on the cross, there's one mercy that happens in the whole process of crucifixion. They would take, where is it? Verse um, 23. They would offer someone who was crucified, not always, but often, wine mixed with myrrh. When you put these together, the effect is, is, is like a narcotic, a, a, you know, a, a little bit to numb the effect of what's happening. That's the one grace or the one mercy in the crucifixion process. And if you'll notice here, when they offer it to Jesus, he doesn't take it. Jesus is submitting to all of this willingly. Now we know Jesus is God in flesh. He is God and man. But Jesus is not a superhero. We've talked about this before, that he is still weak as a result of all of this. Um, so sometimes, uh, in, before, as he's heading up to the cross, we see his own weakness and his physicality. When we look at the cross, we see it as, as, as a T, right? There's the cross piece and then the, the vertical piece. And that cross beam was called the patibulum. It actually comes in two pieces. You can take a cross apart. The cross piece is called the patibulum, and that's the piece that someone who is being crucified would have to carry up to be matched with the vertical piece. And before he's even crucified, Jesus is too weak to even be able to carry that vertical piece, which is the reason why they have someone else carry it for him. So they carry it to this place where he's about to be crucified. And the vertical pieces are called a, a palace, uh, not like a place where a king lives, P-A-L-U-S. So there, were all these, there would be these vertical places where you would affix the horizontal cross piece. And those vertical crosses would just stay there, standing upright. First of all, can you imagine how eerie that would have looked? to then walk into a place of crucifixion to see all the vertical beams standing there like fingers sticking up in the sky. Mark tells us this place is called Golgotha, which is an Aramaic word for skull. We don't exactly know where that is today, although if you go to Israel, you could probably find somebody who, for a price, will take you to a place and tell you that's the place of Golgotha. But at any, any rate, we, uh, we don't know exactly why it was called the skull, maybe just because crucifixions happened there, but it's also possible that the place itself looked like a skull in the rocks, how eerie that would have been. But what we do know about Golgotha is that it was a place just outside of the city of Jerusalem, and it was on a pathway or along a pathway in and out of the city. So it was so close that people that traveled in and out of the city would be able to not only see a crucified person, but hear them and speak to them. That actually happens in this text. Those who pass by are kind of interacting with, with Jesus. They are that close to a crucified person. I don't know what distance that would have been to be able to hear. How far is that? Maybe the distance from me to you. Maybe a little further. But at any rate, this was very intentional on the part of Rome. Because they want to put 
crucifixion right in our path. Why? Crucifixion, then, is supposed to be very public. They want crucifixion to be seen, that those who are crucified would serve as a warning to anyone who passes by. Don't be like these guys. I, I want you to know the consequences of violating our power. And so they would hang them up on crosses then for all to see. Now, it wasn't just about the pain and the blood and the gore, although there was plenty of that to go around. The cross is also about shame. The cross is about humiliation. You see toward the end here when the the soldiers are dividing up his clothes. Again, we know that we talk about these parts at Easter, and, and usually in the pictures or the paintings of him, Jesus is wearing some sort of loincloth-looking thing, but it's likely that he had no clothes left. Uh, most were crucified completely naked. Can you imagine walking by that, having to shield your kid's eyes and shielding your own? To add to the humiliation, they would display then their, their crime, put it up, which for Jesus, all they can put is uh, the king of the Jews, but they would put whatever offense they'd committed then up next to them. Can, can you imagine your worst offense nailed up next to you? And then the people that, wag, that walk by, uh, the, the phrase that Mark used, I, I love the English translation of it here, it's just the people wagged their heads they just shake their heads and go, oh, what a shame. Because the point of the cross is not just to kill. The point of the cross is to degrade. We have modern versions of degrading. Uh, there are buzzwords, uh, and maybe it's just because I'm young, part of a different culture, but you often hear the word shaming it's usually attached to something else, body shaming or fat shaming or mom shaming. And there's other terms in there that are uh, a little more crass than that even. So this affects a lot of people, but typically the, the ones that are receiving these things are, are the younger generation. Typically women are the targets. It's usually perpetrated somehow online under the safety of anonymity on the, on the internet but women and others are called too fat, too skinny, too tall, too pale, too tan. Moms are shamed for breastfeeding or not breastfeeding or for uh, feeding their kids this or that or organic and non-organic and for the ways that they sleep, the ways they raise their kids, the, the way they train their kids. And people are just shamed now, of course, we can go too far with this. We have to be able to speak grace and truth to one another, to speak it and also to, re to, re to receive it. But we know that shaming has a very real and degrading effect. 
that the ones who are on the receiving end of shaming then are nitpicked and pulled apart until there's so very little left. You know the phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And of course, we all know that that just isn't true. Jesus knows what that is like. He knows what that is like. The nails pierced his hands and feet. The beatings pierced his muscle. But the ridicule would pierce his soul. You can see how the mockery spreads over the course of Mark's account of this. It starts with the soldiers with a battalion, which is 600 soldiers. That seems overkill to me. But at any rate, the soldiers are, are mocking him at the beginning. But by verse 29, those who passed by derided him. And then in 31, then the, the chief priests and the scribes mock him until at the end in verse 32, even those who were crucified with him at this time mocked him. Jesus was mocked by criminals. I want to look now uh, for the rest of our time really at a specific mockery. If you'll look in verse 30, this is the saying of some who passed by. They'd say, oh, you who destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days. Verse 30, save yourself. That's what people said while they walked by. Hey, big shot, well, go ahead and save yourself. That's my modern paraphrase. The same thing from the chief priests and the scribes. They're a little more nuanced in it, but he saved others, he says in, in verse 31. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Now, one of the striking things in Jesus' trial and crucifixion is how very little he says. He only says a few words, a few sentences, so he doesn't address their accusation when they would walk by and say, save yourself, but you've got to wonder what he was thinking when they'd say that. Jesus, save yourself, and did he have a desire to just want to explain himself and say, you know, you have no idea, guys, what's going on. Listen, don't you get it? that I am not about saving myself, but I am about saving the world. Guys, don't you get it that I have come to seek and save the lost, and this is the way it must be done? They told him, oh, he cannot save himself. And, and we know that in, in one sense, of course, that's not true that he can save himself. He's able to save himself in anything. Over the year that we've spent with Jesus in Mark's gospel, we've seen him heal disease and cast out demons and feed thousands of people at, at one time with a, with a little bit of bread. He has calmed storms with a word, and he has walked across water. He has even risen the dead back to life. Jesus is able. He has authority to do this. But... When they say you cannot save yourself, there is a sense in which that is true. Because if Jesus would come to save us, 
he must die instead. It's the way it has to go. The crowd doesn't see it, and on some level, I don't blame them. What might I have thought of all of this as it goes down? But the crowd, at least, does not see that this is about salvation. All they can see is the shame of it all. The experience of Jesus is very similar to the psalmists in Psalm 22. Turn there. We'll hear again from Psalm 22 next week. Uh, because in it are some of the saddest words in the entire Bible, which Jesus pulls from. But uh, for us this week, we can hear the psalmist writes this in Psalm 22, starting in verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Oh, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You hear in there the accusations against the psalmist, that it, that it looks in the life of the psalmist that the Lord has failed him. It looks as if something has gone horribly wrong. It looks as if his delight in God is misplaced. And it looks as if his trust in God is a waste. And it's tempting to believe that. It is. Especially in a hard time, especially when we do not feel saved at all, but all we feel is exhausted and ashamed and alone. Even in this experience, the psalmist still clings with his last bits of strength unto trusting the Lord, and he, he still cries out. Look down in verse uh, 16. He says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And hear the psalmist cry out, Lord, Lord, come, Lord, deliver, Lord, save. Don't you want that? To be saved. There's a lot of discussion in the scripture about saving. There's a fancy term then even for it. You need to know the term. There's a quiz later, but it's just helpful to know these things. Soteriology is a fancy term for the study of salvation or the study of saving. So in soteriology, then we look through the scriptures to see what, has, what God has said about his saving power. And when we do that, we see things like the fact that salvation comes in no one else but Jesus. 
We see that salvation is a gift of God by grace through faith in Jesus. We see that salvation leads us then to a holy calling of obedience in following Jesus. And we see that because Jesus is eternal, his salvation is eternal. It's to the uttermost. It is complete. That salvation is secure. That's really good news for the Christian. It means that Jesus has saved us from the final control of sin. That Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God. And that Jesus has saved us from the hold of death forever. Woo! You know, that's good. That's great. You know, we want to love that and say, oh, praise you, Lord. Thank you for this. We are free because we're saved. But of course, there's a hard edge to this too. There always is. Turn to Hebrews in chapter 12. So there's an interesting question for us in here. Hebrews chapter 12. I'll skip over the first verse. It's a good verse. It's just not helpful to us at this particular moment. We'll cut in in the middle of a sentence in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 2. He's now speaking to believers here. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's talk through this a little bit. The writer of Hebrews then says, look at Jesus. I want you to consider Jesus. Really seriously look at him. I want you to look at all that he he experienced in his shame, all the hostility that he endured. And then in verse 3, he says, the reason why I want you to do that is so that you won't grow faint-hearted or weary. Now, why might I grow weary? I mean, I'm saved after all. Things are supposed to be easy, aren't they? We're to look at what Christ endured because we will endure some of the same. The Christian experiences some level of public mockery. There are some who would wag their heads at a Christian, who would look at a Christian and and say, what a shame. Jesus said before he went to the cross to his disciples, because the world hated me, it will also hate you. And Paul said that we are a spectacle to the world. 
that they see us sometimes as, as fools. And those are strong words, but they're fitting. Because true holiness is unpopular. True holiness is unpopular. True holiness is not just saying to us, be nice. True holiness says to us, I'm not my own, but I belong fully to God. And that has some real implications then for me and for us. If I am not my own, but I belong to God, my possessions belong to God. I don't get to indulge every desire that I want with my paycheck. But instead, I am called to give, to share, to sacrifice for others, even if it takes away from me or my family or my country, for that matter. If I'm not my own, but I belong to God, then my speech belongs to God. So I don't get to just join in the good gossip or share in the coarse jokes. But instead, I'm called to tame my tongue, that I'm called to speak kindness when I would rather be angry or to speak hard things, true things, when I would rather be silent or maybe even to speak nothing at all when I'm tempted to just jump in because I want to fit in. If I'm not my own but belong to God, then even my social position belongs to God. That a Christian is not about really impressing anyone, but instead we're called to identify with the poor, with the prostitute, with the prisoner, even if it may cause others to turn their noses up at me. That's a hard calling, but it's a good one. We know that by grace, God molds us over the course of our lives in holiness. We call that sanctification, and it's something that we continue to grow in even to the day of our death. Now, some, we might think that if we pursue good things, if I pursue holy things, that that will draw people to us and that will draw people to God. And sometimes it does that, that when they see a Christian, they see in us some taste of godliness, that they see the loveliness of the Lord and the worth of God. But not always. Sometimes, for others, when they see holiness in us, it draws them to be spiteful toward us, to spit at us, and to mock us. Because Jesus is the light of the world, and the Christian is in the life, or that Jesus is in the life of the Christian, light exposes darkness. And no one likes to be exposed. We know that we're not trying to be mocked. No one sets out brushing their teeth in the morning and looks at their schedule and goes, hey, let's be mocked for Jesus' sake. 
we don't want this on some level, but, but here he's saying, if we are mocked for Jesus' sake, that it will be worth it. That it is worth it to follow Jesus who himself was mocked. You remember uh, in Jesus' ministry before he was killed, uh, the Beatitudes, blessed are you when, blessed are you when, you know these. And um, the end of them in Matthew chapter 5, so he's got this whole list, blessed are you when this happens, blessed are you when this happens, blessed are you when this happens. Here's the last few, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 9, Jesus says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says this then to us. When you're reviled, when you are mocked, don't grow weary. You're blessed. Jesus says, because your reward will be great. Your reward will be in heaven. Your reward will be me, he says. Jesus was mocked, but he did not save himself. Instead, he endured the mockery to save others. This is our God. This is our Savior, and now we follow this Jesus in this. Would you pray with me? Our God, would you help us to follow after you, to endure even hard things and to trust you in all things. Lord, would you help us to follow you in holiness, whatever the cost, because you are a king and a king who saves us. Thank you. And we give you all praise. In Jesus' name, amen.